Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good. Trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? If so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com Who- oh, I got to pull my microphone down Good afternoon, welcome to Southern Sense You're listening live here on Blog Talk Radio SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News Up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, YouTube All the heck with it Goes to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com I'm your hostess with the most Right now I'm wondering if I have much of the most I got right now the radio chick, Annie, and Curtis will be joining us a little bit later. He is at a meeting today, uh, so he should be here uh, during the first hour of the show. Oh, my Lord. I want to welcome everyone that's up listening here on Blog Talk Radio in our chat room, as well as up on Facebook and uh, YouTube, also uh, listening in over there. Uh, we have a lot going on today, a lot to talk about. Two great guests. We got returning Major Scott Husing. Uh, the author of Echo in Ramadi. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's here in South Carolina, about an hour and a half north of me, up at Patriots Point. He was on the USS Yorktown last night for a presentation of Ramadi. So we're going to be talking to him about that. And on the second half of the show, we've got a new guest, a little something different. Uh, it's Dr. Ken Canfield. He uh, works with a group called grandkidsmatter.org, and he wrote a new book out, uh, called The Heart of Grandparenting, Five key, Keys to Being the Best Grandparent Possible. And I read his book, and it is fascinating. Um, things uh, that we have talked about on the show, but never really delved into. Uh, so we'll be joining Dr. Canfield on the second half of the show. Oh, 
gosh, now that I got my breath back <laughs> after I screw up the show opening, figure. <laughs> of course, Curtis not here at this time, so of course I will screw up everything up. <laughs> Man. Anyway, those that listen to the show know that we start off honestly on a somber note. We start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication goes out to not one or two. It goes out to seven heroes who lost their life in the line of duty. It's going out to seven airmen killed on March 15th of this year while serving during Operation Inherent Resolve when their HH-60 Pave Hawk helicopter crashed uh, in Afghanistan. And as we pull everything up here, this is from The Fallen in Military Times, and it reads... The airmen who were deployed in support of Operation Inherent Resolve belonged to three different units. The 38th Rescue Squadron at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia, the 106th Rescue Wing of the New York National Guard, and the Air Force Reserve's 308th Rescue Squadron at Patrick Air Force Base in Florida. They were Captain Mark Weber, 29, of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Weber was assigned to the 38th Rescue Squadron. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force in 2011, according to information from Moody Air Force Base. No information additional was immediately available. Captain Andreas O'Keefe, 37, of Center Mariches, New York. O'Keefe was assigned to the 106th Rescue Squad. O'Keefe was an HH-60G Pave Hawk pilot, according to the New York Guard. He was a full-time federal civilian employee and an Air Guardsman with the Wing's 101st Rescue Squadron. He joined the 106th Rescue Wing in 2013 after serving as an armament systems specialist with the 113th Wing, District of Columbia Air National Guard, and an R6, I'm sorry, RC-26 pilot with the 174th attack wing at Hancock Field Air National Guard Base in Syracuse, New York. He deployed to Iraq three times and to Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, and Texas during Hurricane Harvey. Captain Christopher Zenitus, 37, of Long Island City, New York. Zenitus was assigned to the 106th Rescue Wing. According to the New York Guard, Zenitus was a HH-60G Pave Hawk pilot. He joined the 106th Rescue Wing in 2008 and was assigned to the Wing's 101st Rescue Squadron. Zenitus was a member of the New York City Fire Department in civilian life and had recently joined the law firm of Debehoyce and Clinton in New York City as an associate. He previously deployed to Iraq in 2011, supporting another hh 60G Squadron, and Afghanistan with the 101st Rescue Squadron. Master Sergeant Christopher Raguso, 39, of Comac, New York. Raguso was assigned to the 106th Rescue Wing. Raguso also was an HH-60G Special Missions Aviation Flight Engineer, according to the New York Guard. He joined the 106th Rescue Wing in 2001 and was also a member of the New York City Fire Department. He was assigned to the Wing's 101st Rescue Squadron. He previously deployed to Iraq as a fire protection specialist with the 106th 
Civil Engineering Squadron, twice to Afghanistan with the 101st Rescue Squadron, once to the Horn of Africa, and to Texas and the Caribbean for Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. Staff Sergeant Deshaun Briggs, 30, of Port Jefferson Station, New York, Briggs was assigned to the 106th Rescue Wing. Briggs was an HH-60G Special Missions Aviation Flight Engineer. He joined the 106th Rescue Wing in 2010. He was a full-time military member with the wing and assigned to the 101st Rescue Squadron. He previously deployed to Afghanistan as a munitions system specialist with the 106th Maintenance Group and to Texas and the Caribbean for Hurricanes Harvey and Irma as a member of the 101st. It is with great sadness that I report the loss of four of our wing members, said Colonel Mike Bank, the commander of the 106th Rescue Wing, in a statement. All four of these heroes serve their nation and community. Our sincerest condolences and sympathies to the families and friends have been touched by this tragic event. Master Sergeant William Posh of the India Atlantic, Florida. Posh was assigned to the 308th Rescue Squadron. He was part of a long-range rescue mission at sea to save two German sailors whose sailboat caught fire and sunk in July of 2017, according to the information from the 920th Rescue Wing. A month later, he assisted on many rescues in Texas during the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Posh, a pararescue craftsman, was named one of the Air Force's 12 Outstanding Airmen of the Year in 2014. According to information from the Air Force, Post was recognized for leading a crisis evacuation of more than 126 Americans from the U.S. Embassy in the South Sudan capital of Juba. He also headed a 23-person team during an expeditionary combat deployment and has provided more than 1,560 hours of combat rescue coverage, rescuing 143 persons. Poch's knowledge and skill contributed to his squadron's effectiveness by providing training for airmen and joint service personnel, according to the Air Force. And his battlefield experience, coupled with his understanding of tactical operations, contributed to his design of schematics of a personal recovery tactical operations center, increasing the efficiency and effectiveness of command and control of rescue and recovery operations. He had 18 years of service, the last 10 of which were with the 920th Rescue Wing. His awards and decorations include the Air Medal with the Silver Oak Leaf Cluster, the Aerial Achievement Medal, and the Air Force Commendation Medal with Valor. Staff Sergeant Carl Enos, 31, of Tallahassee, Florida. Enos also was a member of the 308th Rescue Squadron. He joined the unit in 2010 and served for eight years, according to the 920th Rescue Wing. Enoch was a para-rescueman who also worked as a commercial real estate salesman for the TLG Real Estate Services in Tallahassee, Florida, according to a family friend who spoke to the Air Force Times on Friday. Ben Wilkinson, the president and owner of TLG, said in an interview that when he met Enos four years ago, he was struck by what a steady and solid guy Enos was, and they quickly became close friends. He was golden, Wilkinson said. He was a great guy. 
caused him to have met more people than you could ever imagine for someone his age. Honest to God, no one ever spoke an ill word about him. Enos's records and awards decorations include the Air Reserve Forces Meritorious Service Medal with a bronze oak leaf cluster, the National Defense Service Medal, and the Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary Medal. In the past two years, Enos received multiple awards to include Airman of the Year for both the 920th Rescue Wing and the Air Force Reserve Command. The airmen were killed when their paved hawk crashed in western Iraq near the town of Al-Qa'im in Anbar province. The crash does not appear to have resulted from an enemy fire, but possibly because of the helicopter hitting electrical wiring. The incident was immediately reported by another U.S. helicopter flying with the one that crashed, and a quick reaction force comprised of Iraqi security forces and coalition members was dispatched to secure the scene. Lieutenant Colonel Damien Pickard, spokesman for the Air Force's Central Command, said in an email that Pave Hawk was deployed by AFSENT from the Alaska Air National Guard's 176th Wing from Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson. Today's show is dedicated to these seven brave airmen. It's also dedicated to all the military men and women that served from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women who don their uniforms every day to protect and serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency responders. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. Born in the grip of oppression, I fought for my liberty. I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and
Now I'm challenged by tyrants Who envy my power But their vicious deeds Become my finest hour Because my name is America I stand proud and free My name is America Todd Allen Herndon, and check him out at ToddAllenShow.com. We're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. You know what I'm going to say. Go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, Southern-Sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie. And my co-host, Curtis, will be a little late. We're going to have to make sure he gets a permission slip when he does show up. But we got our first victim on the line, retired you, Marine Corps Major Scott Houston. Good afternoon, Scott, and welcome to the great state of South Carolina. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me back on. It's always good to be here. Uh, it's such a pleasure. You're just about an hour and a half north of where I am. I'm down in, as you know, Beaufort, Paris Island. is just right across the street from my doctor's office, literally. <laughs> I mean it. Nice. So I pass, yeah. the, uh, I pass, pass Paris Island all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you're here in South Carolina, up at Mount Pleasant, up at Patriots Point. Uh, you were on the USS Yorktown last night. How was that, and what was going on up there? Oh, I was. It was such a phenomenal event, just a, a, a first-ever symposium about the Battle of Ramadi, which is what my book, Echo and Ramadi, is written about. But what was so special about it, thanks to – Patriots Point Foundation and Keith Grabowski and uh, Allison Hunt and everybody that hosted us at Baird. Um, it, we had a panel of uh, people from the book, actual Marines, uh, one of my lieutenants, one of my squad leaders, one of my Iraqi interpreters, and also one of my Gold Star brothers, Chris Libby, who is the proud Gold Star brother. Uh, his his brother, Dustin, was killed in action on December 6, 2006 in a 
tough five-hour firefight when we were fighting in the city, but it was just a very uh, remarkable presentation to hear from the voices of everybody and to, you know, see the hundreds of people that came out to support us and, uh, you know, to be on board the USS Yorktown in South Carolina uh, with the support of the community. And it was just, just really something different, really something special. And uh, if you want to watch the, uh, the, the, the symposium itself, you can go to, uh, PatriotsPoint.org. Visit them on Facebook. The whole thing is on there. They they've taped it live. So if you missed it last night, you can tune in. It's just a great, great uh, explanation of what happened during the fight and what happened to the guys long after we left the battlefield. Uh, that that is so fascinating because you know you wrote the book Echo and Ramadi, which came out February of this year, and uh, it's it's. It's an amazing book because it's it's now at the top. <laughs> you are you are a best selling writer right now, uh, among your other <laughs> many accomplishments uh, since your retirement from the Marine Corps. Uh, but did you have a chance to go into the Medal of Honor Museum? Because I understand they they revamped it. That's all brand new. I haven't seen it. Uh, the last time I think I saw it was about maybe three years ago. Is it all brand new? Is it up and running? Uh, I didn't go in last night, but I, I've been inside before. I was actually uh, on the Yorktown last year for the Battle of Dido, and as a guest of Major General Livingston, who's a Mount Pleasant native and local hero, and also wrote the forward of my book, also a former commander of Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, and he was there last night, too, to give the opening remarks uh, to our symposium as, as part of the family, part of this group of magnificent bastards of the second battalion, fourth Marines, as we're affectionately called. And, uh, just, just, just really honored to have general Livingston there to, to speak. And, uh, his beautiful wife, Sarah was there and, uh, just, just such a great, uh, such a great night to ha- have them all together under one roof. And, uh, but, the, I understand that they are, they did revamp it, but we didn't get to visit it. We were pretty short on time and had a lot of moving parts going on, but I understand they're, they're going to relocate it as well and have a bigger and more impressive facility here soon too. So, Yeah. Cause the last time I was on there, I was walking through and they didn't have the complete story on all of them. They just had the citation. And as I was walking through, there was a gentleman that was in there with his son and I'm looking at it and they're reading the citation and I'm filling him in on all the blank because a lot of those people that are in the Medal of Honor Museum are people that we have honored on the show. So I was able to tell them about a Sergeant Carty and carrying the flag during the Civil War and how he never let it drop and on and on and on. And it, the kid was so fascinated. It's like, how do you know that? And I had to explain, well, I do a radio show. I honor fallen heroes and I research them before I do it. And that's why I know the background. But I want to see the full background in, in their display because it, it has just a citation, which I think leaves a lot out. But I'm, I'm, as soon as it opens, I'm definitely going to make sure my husband and I travel up there to see it. Uh, but for Major General Livingston, we've had him on the show. And I'm just curious, uh, was Colin Heaton with him when he was there? Did you, Have you ever been no, Colin Heaton? Ca- yeah, Colin is a great friend of mine. Uh, I, I, he wasn't able to come up for this, but uh, he's always such a busy guy too. But uh, yeah. Colin Heaton is just a great friend of mine. He uh, helped uh, launch my book. He wrote a blurb in it. Um, you know, he's a distinguished writer and author himself, historian, professor, uh, former soldier, former Marine as well. He served in both branches. And uh, we uh, I'm just another great person in this amazing network that I've continued to expand as I continue to write and 
speak and uh, help veterans. It's just amazing. But, yeah, Colin couldn't make it. Well, I've, I've known Colin and Anne Marie now for eight years. Uh, I met them first at the very first South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, and we've remained good friends for, for all these years. And I was just curious because if Livingston was there, I thought he would be at his side. But uh, but anyway, we had so much more to talk about, too, um, with your book launching, and you're also involved in uh, so many other things. And let me get my paper without my co-host here. Sometimes I'm a little bass backwards here. But you also have Save the Brave, and this is a problem that not everyone is talking. It's starting to be talked about, the problems of PTSD and suicides in the veterans turning home. Uh, and it's, it's a, at the highest level. It is absolutely amazing how these numbers are just climbing. And there's just a whole handful of resources, and you are involved with this, and tell us about it. Well, Save the Brave was founded by Nick Velez, who was one of my young Marines who fought with me in Ramadi in 2006 in uh, early 2015, and also by a iconic Vietnam vet, Ernie Delgado. His picture was on the cover of Life magazine. Uh, and Nick really wanted to find a way to just get veterans together that were dealing with some of the issues associated specifically with the effects of post-traumatic stress and combat um, and how they process those small pieces of trauma throughout their life. And, uh, you, you know, we've talked about this before too, and with Rick and, and Rick Collins and everything he does, which is so great. And uh, all, all the other, other people that are involved in there, there are so many resources and within save the brave, we're a California based company. We are 100% nonprofit none of us take a salary on the board. Everything goes to support vets. And what we do is provide outreach programs that really get veterans together that can talk about what they've experienced in a safe environment. And sometimes it's deep sea fishing off the Channel Islands. Sometimes it's going up to the mountains. Sometimes it's at an equestrian event. You know, it just, it just depends on what the veterans want to do. thing that's important that I've come to realize is we don't discriminate about what your trauma is. You don't have to be kicking doors in a Ramadi and killing bad guys to suffer the effects of post-traumatic stress. And we never say, oh, because I was kicking doors in a Ramadi, my PTS is worse than your PTS because you are the victim of a, uh, a car accident or military sexual trauma or an, an IED attack or as a, as a truck driver. You know, we, we just don't do that. As long as they're veterans, as long as they're reaching out for help, we're always going to throw them a rope and pull them on board. It is so important. And, you know, PTSD is unique because, you know, it's been – it's been around whenever there's been trauma, but we've just never put our finger on it. Uh, some called it shell shock during World War II, I mean World War One, and it had different names over the years. But now it's finally being diagnosed and being actually treated as a, a I shouldn't say an ailment, but as a condition. And, you know, when I retired from the police department, there was nothing. You know, it was, you were handed your walking papers, goodbye, you walk out. And it took me a long time once I started doing this show. I mean, years after I've retired from the police department before I realized that I also had PTSD. And once I recognized it, I was able to deal with it. But there's a lot of people out there not even realizing that they have it. 
No, it's true. Uh, a lot of people will go through their entire careers, their entire life, and not really recognize the symptoms. And, and it's not always waking up with nightmares and, and deep sweats. You know, a lot of the, the symptoms that are associated with processing the types of trauma that we experience, especially soldiers and Marines that see, you know, the, the worst of war, the worst that combat has to offer. And you as a, as a, as a cop or any first responder that sees the worst that humanity has to offer on the streets of our cities, uh, they often don't process those pieces of trauma and recognize that sometimes it's a short temper or a lack of memory or interrupted sleep patterns or their diet or certain fixations, uh, you know, compulsive behaviors, and they, they don't those things in a productive way. A lot of times they reach out to very unproductive ways through alcohol, through drugs, through isolation, and all of those things lead up to certain stages that we as, uh, you know, nonprofits and people that are committed to helping veterans, we want to intervene and be proactive in the part where they get to that point where they feel they have to isolate themselves and to really intervene and pull them out of that before they get to that point of despair and hopelessness. Because after that sets in, they feel that sometimes there's no alternative but suicide. And so being proactive, reaching out to those within your tribe, within your network, and really pulling them in and letting them know that there's a group there to help them, that's probably the most important thing. And, you know, it's easy to say, and it's easy to talk about on a podcast or on a radio show, but I have to tell you, for me, it's about putting some skin in the game. It really, and, and you've probably heard me say this before, but I'll say it again because I truly believe it. It means acting and doing and not just writing a check sometimes, that, although we like to get big checks at Save the Brave too to help our programs, but volunteering your time on a weekend or your services as an attorney to help nonprofits or a CPA to help us with the books. Because every time we have to pay somebody like that, that takes away from funding for programs or to help others within our network, like our Gold Star families that we're also committed to when they suffer loss. Or if, God forbid, we lose another Marine and we've lost too many already, uh, we provide services to the families to help them with those final arrangements and travel. And, you know, we'd much rather spend $10,000 sending a family out to Angel Fire to get treatment for whatever they're doing or another facility than to spend that money on airline tickets to a memorial service. It's just something we're really committed to do. And we have to solicit the support and help of those who really want to help. And a lot of times they just don't know where to start. And if they want to start, they can go to our website right now, go to savethebrave.org and find out what we do. Um, And it's a very simple approach because getting veterans together in a safe environment and taking them uh, out so they can share their stories is the best medicine. There's no secret pill that the VA prescribes or a vaccine. It's really processing these things and getting to that stage where you feel comfortable sharing that with other people who really understand what you've been through because we are such a small segment of the American society, uh, especially in the military, which make up less than one half of 1% of 330 million people. And then within that, those who experience combat and actually have to go down range and and squeeze the trigger on the rifle and make that life-changing decision to take another human life, that percentage is even smaller. And so those are the guys that often 
feel that they don't need help because they are trained to be invincible. They're trained to be strong all the time. And, you know, I have a message to any of the veterans listen that are dealing with this that can understand is it's all right to hurt. and It's all right to feel those washes come over you of guilt and anxiety, but it's also all right to heal. And it's also all right to connect with your fellow brothers and sisters who've experienced the exact same thing. And there's great healing power in that, you know, that power of human connection. And that's, as you know, the core message of my book, Echo and Ramadi, is the power of human connection. I, I say that time and again whenever people ask me, is it a war story? Is it a book about Ramadi? Is it a book about the battle? Well, absolutely, we talk about that. But the real message of Echo and Ramadi is the power of human connection and how staying linked together, staying bonded through our families, through our fellow Marines and soldiers and everybody that supports us, that is what allowed us to fight and survive and win on the deadliest streets of Ramadi in 2006. And that connection, and is what sustains us to this day. You know, it's funny because I mentioned that, you know, when I retired, and this happens to a lot of people, they retire from their profession. If it's whether it's a first responder or the military, you get your walking papers pushed out the door and goodbye. And then that support system you had, all that time that you served together, is suddenly gone. And where you have an organization such as yours, SaveTheBrave.org, you bring that support system back to them and let them know that they're not out there alone. And I, I think this is this is something that we have to recognize when we do have a first responder or a military person, they need to continue some sort of a support system because once that door shuts and they're, they're set adrift, they feel like they're just out there all alone and no one understands what they've gone through or what is going through their head now. Well, you, you know, what's interesting to talk about, Annie, is that you say they – you know, they go through this or they go through that. Like there's some pool of ambiguous veterans that are just floating in the abyss and, you know, hopefully they don't fall beneath the surface of the dark, cold water. But the real responsibility is the people that have, one, either been through that type of trauma or, two, that understand it and are in a position of leadership or were in a position of leadership like myself that reach out and, and stay connected to these people and check in and you have some sort of network that whether it's a phone tree or you call, you know, Annie, you call five cops that you knew this month. That's your job. And just ask them how they're doing. You can't just wait for them to surface and, and see the symptoms and then react. That's what being proactive is all about. That's what leadership is all about. And for me, Leadership is not a nine-to-five job. It's not something that stopped when I left the bloody streets of Ramadi. It's not something that stopped when I left the Marine Corps in, in 2013. It's something that I continue to do this day. And I know that's not easy for everybody to understand, but for me, it, it's something that's so so ingrained in what I do because I feel so committed to helping veterans uh, not only deal with the effects of post-traumatic stress, but transition from the military, uh, transition into the private sector, uh, transition into being an artist, being a writer. These are all things that I feel committed to. But, you know, these people, the they that you mentioned, they're, they're real people. They have names and faces. And, you know, oftentimes that gets blurred sometimes when we, we, we see the tragic results of that and, post things on social media like oh remember the fallen and there's a 
There's just a picture of him and the date they died. But there's so much more to the story than that. And what's more important, too, is those service members, those first responders, whoever we're talking about, they have families that are left behind, too. And those pieces of trauma are still floating in the wake behind them long after they leave us. So there's so many second and third order effects that it's so far reaching and it seems overwhelming. And I think probably many people listening to the show are like, man, that seems like such a responsibility. How does anyone take on that type of responsibility? Well, you help who you can. And even if you help just one person, you've helped more than most ever will. And that's something important that people need to realize. No, that is true. You know, I may say they, we actually should be saying we, um, it's not to put them into a group and just push them aside and say, well, this is just this group and we have nothing to do with it. It, You are so correct. It is you. It is me. It is those listening out there that have family members that have served in one form or another who have gone through the trouble. And it's those family members also that have to deal with that individual that is suffering from that trauma. Because you you go home, and if they don't understand what you're trying to communicate to them, then you get angry, and then they bear the brunt of your anger, and then there's fights. And as you said, it it just expands from there. So you, with working with and creating uh, with your partner there, uh, Save the Brave, are helping not just the person that's injured, but the family itself that is being injured by that person, whether or not they realize it or not. No, absolutely. And I think it was a great testimony last night when we were on board the Yorktown to to have Chris Libby uh, on board with this and, and talk about how he felt about still being included in the family of 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines and how important that is to him that he knows that his brother served his country. And, you know, we closed the, the symposium with, with Chris speaking a little bit, but uh, my final comments were that, you know, we don't want this to be a message of sadness and these, you know, darkened brothers and sisters and shrouded widows and, and dour moms that just mope around and, you know, they feel sorry for themselves. Because truly, when we talk about our Gold Star families and the people that are dealing with that, those types of trauma from the loss, it's really a story of brightness, again, because they're there for us as much as we are there for them. And they serve as this this beacon, this torch of brightness that really shines light for a lot of the guys that are still dealing on how to get through the darkness on their own. And I think it's just a really positive story. And those stories really far out outweigh those of, of the, the gloom and doom and the, the real people that struggle so much and make it such a part of their daily life. And, and they absolutely need, you know, someone to put their arm around them and help them through what they're going through. But, um, Equally, the ones that are out there active, engaged with the units that their their Marines served with, uh, I think that that's really the support structure that we're trying to develop and continue to uh, unfold um, day after day, month after month, and it really continues to expand. And, you know, and I have to say thank you again to you because just by having me on the show and being on Southern Sense and talking about this stuff, you're part of the solution because not everybody wants to talk about this because it's a difficult subject. So I just want to say thank you on behalf of Save the Brave and all of the veterans that I deal with. It's, it's an important part. It really is. So thank you. And, and thank you to all the listeners that uh, are, are getting a better understanding of, of what some veterans uh, like myself and others are really committed to. 
Yeah, I'm I'm honored that you say that because I feel like I do just a small part. Uh, but also, you know, one of the things that you, know, you you mentioned is about the people that are left behind. It can't be all doom and gloom uh, because sometimes when I do the dedication, I'll come across a little piece where a park has been dedicated in the name of that or a scholarship has been raised or a community has come together to raise money to pay off the family's mortgage uh, of the fallen. And we have to show that, yeah, life does continue. And it's a matter of helping these people to adjust, to help keep that name out there, the name of the fallen, but also to help those that are living, that are left behind. And like you're right, it can't be doom and gloom. We have to look for a future. No, absolutely. All right. Well, we do have a question in the chat room from our friend Kel, who also has a show, uh, Red Fox Radio, and she's also up on Global Patriot Radio. This girl is like tireless. Uh, but uh, she's uh, she's asked the question because I used to belong to a group on Friday nights where we do our football pro- prognostication. And I'm proud to say I came in number two last year. Uh, but with the <laughs> kneeling by the players before the American flag, before those bearing the colors, that made me rethink the way I was going to look at the NFL. And I said, all right, fine. Let's see what the NFL leadership is going to do about these guys kneeling on the field. Because if I'm paying to watch a football game, I'm paying to see a sport. If I want to see a political thing or I want to listen to a political program, I'll change the dial. But if my money is going specifically for the the sport, I don't want to see your protest on the field. Play the sport. When you're off the field, that's your own personal time. You're not on company time. You're not on the fan's dollar. Then do your protest. But you notice they never do this off the field. They only wait for the cameras while they're on field. So what's your position now with Kaepernick getting this, having this contract that no one knew about for a long time, and finally they bring it out on the 30th anniversary of Just Do It, uh, having Kaepernick the face of Nike, and still the NFL is doing nothing substantial to these players who are kneeling before the very flag you fought for? Well, it's a, it's a highly, you know, dynamic topic when you talk about that. And uh, do do I think that they should uh, inter, inter, intertwine, uh, you know, what we do as service members with, you know, what uh, an NFL football star does and make those comparisons. I don't even think it is a comparison. And I think when you play into that narrative of what, what Nike or what, what, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick is, is protesting, which is, uh, you know, police brutality, just to make it sure he's not anti-military, he's not protesting against the military. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, when you, when you read into that narrative and you buy into that, and you, you make more out of it. I think you're adding to the problem instead, instead of really just tuning it out. And, and I will say this, is that as a person that spent 24 years serving my country, you know, fighting in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Horn of Africa and, and deploying, you know, 10 times over my career, you know, I, I always say this, you know, show me a good protest and I will show you a great democracy in action. And that's true. That's why we fight. And do I feel that the guy that works, uh, you know, for minimum wage and saves up all year to buy one ticket to go to an NFL game and has to deal with the politics during an an entertainment event? No, I don't think it's right. Um, Do I think, you know, people like Colin Kaepernick are entitled to protest? Absolutely, they're entitled to protest. Um, I think I agree with you that 
if you feel so strongly about your cause and you make so much money doing it, put a little bit of your own skin in the game, buy an infomercial on TV and, and spend an hour of your time and, and pay some network $100,000 for 30 minutes of airtime and, and do an infomercial and, re, and really talk about it. But when you're cutting into the, the paycheck of the average fan at a sporting event, yeah, I take exception to that to a degree. But uh, we've had a lot of discussions about this with good friends of mine like uh, Nate Boyer and, and Pete Turner on the Break It Down show. And, uh, you know, we're all veterans. So we all understand, um, you know, what we've done in our lives. I don't think there's any comparison, I, you know, to say, uh, you know, what you sacrifice uh, morally uh, or ethically, you know, as a, as a, as a public figure, as, a, as someone in the, in the sports and entertainment industry, compared to that of what someone who's made the ultimate sacrifice, laying down their life on the battlefield to defend our Constitution, they're so vastly different. And, and I think – once we get past that and, and stop buying into that rhetoric, I think we'll just be much better off. But, you know, I'm not defending Nike. I'm not defending Kaepernick. I'm not defending the NFL. But the cold hard fact is controversy is a brand, and that's what they're selling. And you know what? They can either they can either boycott Nike or maybe sales has gone up. I don't know. They they never come out with that when they when something like this pops on the mainstream media. But uh, I think the vast majority of veterans um, and I don't speak for all of them obviously, but um, you know I'm pretty comfortable in my level of coolness at this stage of the game. I know what I've done uh, to protect this nation. I know what it means to sacrifice, and I know what my Marines and soldiers have sacrificed day in and day out as they fought, you know, five, six, seven times a day in the bloody streets of Ramadi. It, it doesn't even compare to what, um, you know, a public figure or a celebrity or an entertainer or an athlete does uh, on the, on the field. But um, that's, that's my opinion. All right. I, I noticed that there's something, um, someone in the chat room that is disrespecting the other listeners to the chat room i will give him a warning once otherwise you will be kicked if you are who i think you are you will be kicked first off uh called our listeners simpletons uh kaepernick was got a suggestion from a, a marine a retired marine you know about the protest and he, kaepernick asked him what is your opinion and he well he goes, it's your choice to do. You know, if you feel like kneeling is your protest, fine. But my point is, is that they're doing it in a venue where they are capturing an audience, uh, an audience that is there for entertainment, for a sport. There is rules uh, when Kaepernick was hired, certain ways in which he must behave on and off the field. And if he mm-hmm. does not follow those rules, he, he should not have a job. If he, as you said, and I said before, if he is so uh, passionate about his First Amendment right, there is a place to do it, and that is off the field, out of the uniform. If you have a protest, contact your congressman, contact your local legislator, get out there with a sign and protest on the street or in front of the White House. Exercise your First Amendment right in the appropriate venue. I'm not saying that, you know, you can't do it. I'm just saying if I am paying you my hard-earned dollar to see you play a game, play the game. Because uh, you're taking I, money I, out of I, people's yeah, pockets. I, 
I, I don't I don't disagree with that. And I think the the, the argument to that would be, uh, you know, well, what is appropriate? What is an appropriate venue? This is America. We get, we have free speech in every venue. And uh, you know, do I do I again do I do agree with it wholeheartedly? No, absolutely I don't. I, I think that when you go there, you should be able to enjoy the game. You should be able to enjoy the the movie or the the entertainment without the politics being involved. We're so inundated by that. There's so many forums for that. Um, I think that the, the, the leadership within the NFL, if, if they really want to win their fans over and respect their fans, you know, they will set guidelines and they will hold employees of the organization accountable. And I think that that's something that they're afraid to do for looking uh, is if they're demonizing or violating someone's, you know, constitutional rights to free speech and, and to protest. But uh, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, and I, and I, again, you know, I, um, I don't speak for Nate, um, you know, he's, he's a, a friend of mine, but uh, you know, he, he has spoken to Colin Kaepernick and many people have seen Nate Boyer on mainstream media uh, and his guidance to him about, Hey, you know, instead of sitting on the bench in protest, you know, there's probably a better way so you don't disrespect the flag and you get out on the field and you take, you take a knee. And that's, that's what he chose to do. Um, it, you don't have to agree with it. And, again, I, like I said, if, he, if he's so passionate about it, buy some airtime on your own. You make a lot of money. And uh, really tell the people what you're protesting and, and show them that way. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think everybody should be subjected to it. It just stirs up too much controversy in that type of forum. So, yeah. Oh, we started up a little a controversy where I just kicked someone out of the chat room. He continued to disrespect, saying, we hate the First Amendment. Obviously, he wasn't listening. We don't hate the First <laughs> Amendment at all. And we defend the right to a person to protest. What I am yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much clearer I could have My been. dime. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how much more <laughs> articulate I could have been and. uh you know, I am a bit of a wordsmith being a writer, but uh, yeah, show me, show me a good protest. I'll show you a good democracy. That's, that's free speech. You know, that's what we, that's why I swore an oath to the constitution as an officer of the United States Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, and, and, and Annie, good for you. Kick them out. You know, there's so much negativity <laughs> in this world. If uh, you got to deal with people that just don't want to be civil and have a discourse and, and be polite on social media, Get rid of them. I, I got enough negativity in my life and have dealt with the worst of the world has offer. What, you know, hit the block key, get them out of there, let them harass someone else. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that may seem like, oh, you're censoring me. No, I'm not. It's, again, it's my show. It's, you know, it's my website. It's, uh, you know, I, I choose who my friends are and I choose who to have conversations with and good for you. Especially since I'm the one that's paying for this. So, no, it's not like public TV. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to allow you in. It's my show. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, listen, I, I saw that you're working with a new speaker bureau, uh, Bravo uh, 476, and I found that site fascinating. And I saw on there, um, what's his name, John Woodall has a great video. I'm telling people to go to this website, bravo748.com, and check out the uh, video by John Woodall. Because 50% of the proceeds, if you buy his video, goes to Camps for Heroes, which is opening up right up near you in North Carolina, right? Well, I'm in Southern California, but uh, Jamie Burton founded, yeah, Jamie Burton founded Bravo 748. And uh, Bobby Henline, the well-done comedian who's the Army vet, uh, 
who is in an ID explosion in Iraq, uh, is the spokesperson. Bobby's a great guy. Jamie's a, a, a wonderful person, friend of mine. And, uh, yeah, I've been with them for a couple of years now, and it, it's an amazing cast of, of guest speakers, public speakers, um, you know, from Kevin Briggs uh, to Josh Montz and uh, Bobby Henline, just so many, so many people that have such powerful messages about leadership and team building and overcoming adversity. If you are out there and you are in the private sector and you really want some perspective on what your toughest day is, and then really put that into perspective on what some of these men and women in Bravo 748 have dealt with, they will share their stories with you and really make you look at things through a different lens. And, uh, I'll share a story with you about Bobby because he was, uh, you know, he's, he's lost, uh, you know, limbs. He's been burned over, I think, 70% of his body, uh, so many hundreds of surgeries. And we're on a trip up to Canada to talk to some wounded warriors and do a U.S.-Canadian wounded warrior trip last summer. And we get on the one bus with no air conditioning. And there's some some strap hangers up front and me and Bobby and Jamie are in the back and the, the AC's out. It's like a four hour drive from the airport to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And they're complaining. They're like, Oh my God, it's so hot. And the windows won't open. And then finally about 30 minutes into it, Bobby Henline pipes up. He goes, Hey, shut up up there. You want to know what hot is? I'll tell you what hot is. And there was dead silence. And then me and John Krotek and Jamie and Bobby just start busting up laughing. Like, we got it. But, uh, yeah, really put things in perspective, though. Like, that guy knows what hot is, you know, being trapped in a burning Humvee after a roadside explosion. So, God, love love Bobby. <laughs> Man. Well, like I said, you know, I want people to go to this Bravo 748 website, 748.com, and check out the video by John Woodall, Stand Tall, It's Called, and like I said, 50% of the proceeds go to this new camp. But I have a question. Uh, there was a scene in that video of uh, someone that put his hand on the Spartan sword, and I had to do a double take. It is either your twin or it's you. <laughs> I haven't seen the video, Annie, so I'm not uh, – I, I wasn't in the video, so it's got to be my twin. I, 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 I'm looking at it. I'm going, it can't be. It can't be. And uh, – the look on his face and the way he was doing it, I said, did Scott take up acting now? Is that part of your, your new uh, resume? Uh, no, not yet. So uh, not, not, in the, not in the near future. So, uh, but uh, yeah, they, again, you know, Jamie's got such a talented, uh, talented bullpen of speakers. Um, you know, it's just, it, she never ceases to amaze me, you know, the people she pulls in and uh, you know, I was very fortunate again, you know, Jamie called me um, just recently and said, Hey, there's a great opportunity for you to, um, they want you to be the keynote speaker at San Francisco fleet week on October 2nd. Um, so uh, I said, absolutely, you know, to be included, to go up to talk to hundreds of veterans and families and transitioning uh, service members uh, about my experiences is something I couldn't pass up. And, you know, the, another guy that's kind of, overlaps in my circles that I'm a fan of is, you know, Sebastian Younger spoke last year. So I said, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to go up there and speak. Um, uh, but yeah, Jamie's just doing great things at Bravo and uh, can't say enough good things about her. 
Now you're talking about the Fleet Week that's in uh, Manhattan, right? I'll be I'll be in the San Francisco Fleet Week. So they do one on each coast, oh. and uh, San Francisco Fleet Week is October second, Bay Area in, in California, and it's going to be at the Performing Arts Center and the uh, War Memorial. And uh, I'll be speaking there at four thirty on October second, uh, twenty five days from now. But uh, wow. tonight, wow. tonight, tonight, if there's South Carolina listeners, I will be doing a book signing at the Barnes and Noble in Mount Pleasant from 5 to 7 p.m. tonight. So I'll be doing a local event here tonight to sign some books for people as well. Yeah, the Barnes & Noble up in Mount Pleasant, I believe, if I remember correctly, is right on 17 off of 526. Uh, yeah, I'm picturing it in my mind. I've, I've passed through there so many times. Uh, I wish you could take a ride down here like tomorrow visit the old Paris Island and maybe have a cup of coffee or a scotch with me or something. Yeah, I wish, yeah, I wish I would. It was a really, really quick trip. Um, and I was honored uh, to be on the Yorktown last night. This morning I went over to the Citadel and talked to some of the future leaders of uh, our military and, and, uh, you know, industry at the, at the Citadel, you know, to, to be there and, and talk to some of those young faces is uh, just a just a real treat. And uh, Colonel Dunn invited me in and Captain John Moreno to to have me speak to the the cadets there at the Citadel. And then tonight, like I said, I'll be at the Barnes and Noble in, on Mount Pleasant Town Center. And it is it's on uh, 17 and 16 Town Center Way in Mount Pleasant, and that'll be from 5 to 7 p.m. tonight. Wow, I wish I could take a trip up there, but I can't. My mom flew into town last weekend, so I got my hands full. And you know what mom could be. Don't worry, she doesn't have a computer, so she can't listen in. Anyway, uh, so how are the book sales on the Echo and Ramadi? I hear it's like the top ten. It was uh, awarded top ten best military books of 2018. Um we just sold out on Amazon uh, two weeks ago, and I was uh, a little bit freaked out because when I, you know, I told people, I said, hey, go to Amazon, buy the book, and it says out of stock. I quickly called my publisher, and uh, they rectified the problem. Uh, you know, there's worse problems to have as an author to, one, have a best-selling book and then have it to, to sell out on uh, Amazon. So um, thanks to my, my publisher, Regnery, in, in Washington, D.C., they're uh, – they're in the uh, works of, of doing another reprint, but the book's still available on Kindle. It's available on Audible. It, it's just doing great, and it's due to the great support of people like you and getting the message out and really sharing the story about our nation's heroes and our families and, and what they went through and really highlight a very significant piece in American history and uh, in military history at that because, uh, you know, one of the reasons in addition to writing the book to honor the families and Marines was I never wanted the battle of Ramadi to fall into the shadows of other significant battles like Fallujah or Baghdad or Kandahar or Helmand Province, um, which were significant. But uh, when I say Ramadi was the deadliest city in Iraq, which is on the cover of the book, that's not hyperbole. That's not uh, a, a vague statement. It, it's a fact that we lost four Marines and soldiers and civilians in that city in 2006 and 2007 than in any other city during this long war. And the statistics are what make it the, the most uh, deadliest city um, in Iraq at that time. And 
um, it's gone through highs and lows of good and bad and, you know, it's stabilized over the years, but um, it's, um, it's been phenomenal. I, I've just had so much support and, you know, you never think, or at least I never thought as a young, you know, guy that barely squeaked out of high school, Annie, and then uh, enlisted in the Marines <laughs> and then was fortunate enough to finally get into a college and graduate in three years and, uh, you know, to have a successful career in the Marine Corps and to visit so many countries and then, you know, write a best-selling book and then be surrounded by so many great people that have supported me whom I never thought I would ever be introduced to, like Bing West or Dale Dye or uh, Joe Galloway or all of these famous people, Sebastian Younger. And, you know, I got an email uh, from uh, John Barletta, who recently passed away, um, who wrote Riding with Reagan. And I went up to the Reagan Ranch uh, Center and had lunch as the, you know, with John Barletta, who's Reagan's Secret Service agent for 17 years. And we signed books for each other. And it's just, just an amazing opportunity for me. I feel really fortunate. And uh, I think that's part of allowing yourself to be exposed to new things, new organizations, and really sharing a part of yourself and being authentic. Um, and, you know, sometimes it, it takes asking favors, too. And I think people appreciate that and a lot of times uh, I, i've heard people say like well why didn't you ever do this or why didn't you do that and, and they say well no one ever asked me and i said so one of the things <laughs> well, i'm Scott, never accused of is being shy i'm like annie i want to be back on your show not... okay come back on my show oh, i forgot man. to ask actually, you all right i want to be back on your show matter of fact kel had put in there saying please have mr Houston back and uh, Scott, you know you're always welcome back. It was a pleasure having you here the first time when we introduced your book. Uh, people can find you at echoinramadi.com and also at savethebrave.org. Um, I didn't have enough space on the show page, so I'm going to edit the show page a little bit later to have both of those websites so people listening to the podcast can go and click on both of them and get directly to you. Uh, it has been a pleasure. You are a godsend, and God bless you for the hard work you do, Scott. Well, thanks again. Much love to you and, and all your listeners. And uh, it's always a pleasure being on the show. Thanks again for having me. Okay, take care. Scott Husing, check him out, echoinramadi.com and savethebrave.org. We got our next victim up in the bullpen, and it looks like my co-host finally made it into the room. So as Curtis, as soon as you're ready, unmute yourself. We want to welcome to the show a newcomer, Dr. Ken Canfield. How are you doing, Dr. Canfield? <laughs> Uh, fine, Anne. Doing very well. Thank you. Yeah, I got to laugh because uh, your, your, I don't know, your agent, Jackie, sent me an email a few minutes before we went on air uh, asking whether or not you can uh, you extend your Christianness. And I said, we are a Christian conservative uh, radio show, so please do. We are unabashedly Christian and conservative. Welcome aboard. Um, I got to admit, though, um, I was... I was using the PDF a reader to highlight sections in your book as I was reading it, and I printed out the highlight sections. Well, you know what my computer printer did? Printed out the entire book, but I need a magnifying oh. glass to read the highlighted notes. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, don't be. Listen, just when it comes into print, you got to send me a copy. Your name of your book is The Heart of Grandparenting, Five Keys to Bringing the Best Grandparent possible and you have the heart uh, abbreviated h period e period a period r period t period can't believe i did that whole thing <laughs> anyway 
um, it's it's a fascinating book, uh, and I want to talk about it. Uh, my question is 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 there any sort of uh, association because you have a website called uh, National Association for Grandparenting. Uh, the link is up on the show page to both the book and to the association. But what about people that aren't grandparents? Have you got a way to link uh, grandparents with children or families that don't have grandparents in them? Well, I think one of the best ways is connection to a faith community, a church. Uh, you know, we we have a model of uh, an elder grandparenting in action in the annals of Scripture. If you think of the uh, 40th day after the birth of our Lord, uh, there were two people uh, that were elders there at the temple. They were praying night and day. They had a role in blessing and encouraging others. <clears throat> and that's exactly who Joseph and Mary took the newborn to. It was Simeon and Anna. And they represent, I think, the, the spiritual part of grandparenting. So you, you don't have to have natural grandkids. But because of your age and your position and your experience, you have the role of blessing and even speaking prophetically into a young person's life. Now, in this case, uh, it was a unique blessing, and this was a unique child. I understand that. But I encourage grandparents uh, within the church or within faith communities to look around and connect in a way they can. Now, this can be enlarged in neighborhoods and communities. We see the Foster Grandparents Program, actually, that Nancy Reagan started when uh, Ronald Reagan was governor of California. It continues on. So there are many nuances to this grandparenting role, which we need to uh, bring back into the forefront because families need that intergenerational connection, uh, particularly American families. Uh, you look at other cultures, like in Asian cultures, they, a culture, they get it. They know the value of, of grandparents and the respect for elders. Oh, I had a, uh, an engineering professor tell me, uh, I taught in China, and I taught at, uh, we'll, we'll say, the largest state in the South. Uh, it starts with a T. And he said, I will teach in China anytime. The minute I get off the plane, I don't know if it's my white hair, uh, but there's a, a, an unquestionable respect for, for just age. And so that's why grandparenting needs to come back in vogue, because we, we have many times run over and, and disregarded the wisdom of prior generations only to make the same mistake that they made. Uh, it, it, your book is fascinating. Now explain why in the title of the book you have heart uh, punctuated the way you do. Well, heart is an acronym. Uh, I have a PhD in research. I've been a social science researcher for pretty much all my life. I've written and then guided uh, what I'd say user-friendly practices. In this case now, I'm focused on grandparenting. And the website that you can go to to get help is grandkidsmatter.org. It's a nonprofit. So the HEART is an acronym. It stands for the components and pillars that distinguish what I would call effective grandparents as well as explaining the research in a comprehensive, understandable way. And in addition, I think it can highlight some of the, the, the passages in the New and Old Testament 
that bring grandparenting into the forefront. Well, you have the acronym you have where you have, like I said, I need a magnifying glass on this one. Um, The H stands for heritage. Excuse me. And you mentioned the uh, Oriental culture where grandparents are revered. Uh, But in your book, you explain why heritage is extremely important. And there's a lot of touching stories because you use examples throughout the book, some good and some frightening. And you show how you can take what was bad and turn it into something good. Also throughout the book, you write extensively about this, Um, knowing where you come from helps you to Focus your family on where it's going. Right. Right. Uh, Okay, so let's unpack heritage. Um, All of us want resilient children and grandchildren. Resilience comes when you uh, face uh, any sort of problems and crises. And just living in America today, there are crises every day. Well, how do we build resilience in children? This is where Marshall Duke at Emory University came up with a questionnaire called the Do You Know Questionnaire. And what it is is simply a a dip into the heritage that you bring to the forefront. We all had grandparents. We may not know them. We may not have had connection with them, but we know the genetic history is there. So we have the physiology. What we're finding is this. The more you're aware of your heritage, what that does is it gives a sense of identity. Identity is key in building resiliency. So uh, an awareness of your heritage, in fact, then they did tests on adolescents who had a, a good sense of their family heritage. My dad did this. My mom did this. My grandparents lived here. They had some sort of connection. And these children had higher measures of resilience. So what that says is this. Uh, There is a psalm that that says children are a heritage from the Lord. Uh, When it comes to grandchildren, any grandparent knows, wow, this is cool. In fact, the the joke is if I knew grandchildren were going to be this much fun, I would have had them first. Uh, This, uh, again, highlights, you know, just this heritage piece, how, how valuable heritage is. So for you as a grandparent or an elder, making sure we have a keen awareness and understanding of our heritage. Now, let's say it's not good. Let's say there's been six divorces and you're on your seventh marriage. Well, still having an awareness of what happened in one's life instead of it being secret and off uh, limits, uh, that doesn't do service to your children and grandchildren. Because the more that we can bring what we have learned and the mistakes we have made and and the successes we have in a healthy sense, the better uh, the identity formation will be for children or grandchildren, whatever they uh, may be in your uh, specific situation. Um, A lot of people don't. Oh, this is my co-host, Curtis. Hello, Curtis. Welcome aboard. Hey, it's great to be on. Um, My question is this. um, It's a challenge for some grandparents to be an influence in their grandchildren's lives when um, their their, um, son or daughter, who are the parents of the grandchildren, 
live like 3,000 miles away, you know, it's, I'm not sure how how you find a remedy to that when, you know, the, the distance these days are that interested in anything outside of, you know, what the tech companies put out on social media and whatnot. I'm not sure if they believe in relationships. And I think that has an impact, not growing up with not just your grandparents, but cousins and things like that. And this happens a lot with military families who get stationed like Alaska or South Korea or something like that. Well, Curtis, you bring up a good point. I could spend a whole hour talking about that. Uh, First of all, for anybody listening who is distanced from their children or grandchildren, this is uh, a big challenge. I happen to have an officer, a son uh, that uh, is in the military And uh, this is what they note uh, as it relates to resiliency and preparing those uh, for battle, frontline services. Uh, If a soldier knows that there are safeguards and his family is cared for, if they're 2,000 miles away and he's on the front lines, what that does is it builds a sense of uh, esteem and care in the soldier. And what they did is they tested their battle readiness. And soldiers who knew that that was going on were, uh, in a good way, support from the the, the military military service community actually proved to be better in battle, uh, better in accomplishing, you know, the everyday task of someone uh, that that is uh, in uh, harm's way. And so it goes back to what are we doing to help families where there is major disconnection. Now, I would say politely and respectfully to Curtis, don't underestimate your influence. Okay, when the doors are shut, people know the tsunami and the cesspool of culture just doesn't fill the void in the heart. If there's been no initiative and no connection made on behalf of uh, your grandkids who live 3,000 miles away, I believe grandparents and parents both have underestimated their leverage because we're so overwhelmed with all these messages that are floating through the air. And the reason I know this is because if you look at adolescent studies and ask who are your major influences, of course, friends and culture, but parents and extended family members come next. It is undeniable what God's designed, I think, in what the family should be is what we need to strive for. So let's talk practically, okay? So you're uh, across uh, the ocean or maybe across town. And by the way, if you're across town in Los Angeles, (laughs) sometimes it takes almost as as long as it takes for a transatlantic flight to get from, (laughs) you know, Northern L.A. to San Diego, seriously, the 405 is a a crazy place to be. So how do you compensate? And I would say this, your mind and your spirit, it moves in a sense with God's synchrony. I know that this, this, this discipline of prayer or of writing blessings or of preparing for that visit has incredible impact. So there was a young man who had grandparents uh, 3,000 miles away and grandparents in town. This young man 
told me this, as he is now an adult, in fact, uh, a pediatrician. He said, my grandparents 3,000 miles away had more impact, both of them intact families, so there wasn't anything like that. And I said, okay, now, why is that? And he said, I would only get to spend a week with them in the summers. But they prepared for that week. I mean, every minute was planned. And it was like I got off, uh, got out of the car because they were driving a lot then, and uh, uh, and sometimes got off the plane as he, he got older. And from the beginning to the end, I was their priority. They looked at me. They had accumulated thoughts and 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 ideas, and 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 they encouraged me in my career. And my grandparents who were living in the same town, they were you know caught up in their own stuff. And I credit their intentionality, their proactivity, and I would say being in tune with the spirit uh, as as that uh, that made a difference. In addition, when he came back home, not every week, but he said every six, eight weeks, I'd get a letter from them. And they'd reflect back on that time. And they would then tell me what they were doing or what was going on. He said it was powerful. So again, there are ways to bridge this distance. I know technologically, FaceTime, Skype, uh, Snapchat. Uh, I mean, I use all the above because I have some grandchildren that are not three, but 1,500 miles away. And I just don't get the access that I'd like, so I have to look outside the box. Well, I got to admit, the chat room happens to love you, and specifically our friend Kel uh, of Red Fox Radio. She wrote that uh, she asked me, "Can you relate how much I appreciate Dr. Canfield?" Uh, so yes, and then Robert comes in that he agrees completely. So. They're reflecting in the chat room about their own grandparents, and I was fortunate to have all four of them. And uh, and we were constantly visiting them. One was, uh, lived in the same state we lived in, but about an hour away. The other one lived in a different state and about two hours away. And I, our connections with our grandparents were so intense that I remember uh, when I was in college having some emotional problems with someone I was dating, uh, I went down to my grandmother down in New Jersey and would stay with her just so I could sit and think. Uh, and she would sit there and she would pray, uh, never never pride, but just knew that something was troubling me and knew that I needed the quiet time with her to work things out. And she would go to church with me. And faith has a lot to do with it. And in your book, you mentioned how faith and you mentioned parts of the scriptures as you relate these stories. And that's right. I mean, what I can tell, and this, if we did a profile on you and looked at your own uh, identity index, your self-esteem, your resiliency, your grandmother imparted something to you that money can't buy. This isn't that you just stand and say, oh, Christmas, we got to do this and birthday. This is a bona fide relational capital that is uh, in short supply. Grandparents, you have the time and energy to supply this. And why are you still alive? I mean, come on, what's the purpose? Why has God, you know, not uh, allowed you to to come in if, if this is your destiny into the celestial city? What purpose has he for you now? I am convinced, Dan, we are ready for an awakening in America. 
an awakening that has roots in the family and the elders, the old men, the old women, God's pouring out his spirit on them to do things uh, that uh, are needed. And I would just say this in, in, in contrast, parents approach children differently than grandparents. Here you are struggling with something. Your grandmother acted differently than your parents would have acted. I like to use this analogy. Uh, parents have, have uh, expectations that they must fulfill. Uh, parents must, you know, discipline. They must give guidance. They must uh, have follow-up. They, they have expectations very clear. It's almost like uh, parents are like an Old Testament. Uh, they, they're preparing the, the raw material, this child, and making sure everything is in sync. You know what grandparents are? They're like gifts from the New Testament where love and grace just flows out. They know that it is a privilege to see grandchildren. If they don't, they're missing something. And, and they express love differently than parents do. That's why every kid needs a connection to an elder, uh, to a grandparent figure, to, to someone who sees life much differently than, than the performance and expectation of parents. So we need uh, a, a huge uh, infusion of grandparenting love and grace right now in the culture. And that's not to say grandparents can't provide uh, guidance and instruction. I think, Curtis, you, you, you alluded to this, but I'll say uh, that there are two and a half million grandparents right now in America that if I get to the celestial city or the heavenlies before they do, I'm nominating them for the Congressional Heavenly Medal of Honor. And these are grandparents <laughs> who are raising their grandchildren. Now, just think about oh, it. Yeah. You're in your late 50s, 60s, and 70s, and all of a sudden a kid falls off, he gets incarcerated, makes poor decisions, or let's say he loses his job and just is in depression. Uh, his wife, you know, uh, things come up and nobody's raising. And right now, 7.8 million children in America under the age of 18 are being reared by their grandparents. These people are incredible. So this is what I do, do, and you'll like this. This is the A in the heart of grandparenting. Again, the heart is an acronym for the uh, expressions and the pillars of an effective grandparent. I ask adults who have been, you know, uh, impacted deeply by their grandparents, what word or phrase would describe your grandparents? And this is what they responded. They said, they're like angels. Now, just let that set for a minute. I am not suggesting that grandparents are angels, but they're like angels. Angels protect. Angels show up at unique times. Angels have messages. I mean, this is really heavy. Now, this didn't come from, uh, you know, a bright researcher that's written, uh, you know, a dozen-plus books and both scientific and popular. This came from me just listening to the impact of grandparents. So, so hear this. Don't underestimate your role. You've got a tremendous role, an angelic-type role. And if you read about the, the nature and the activity of angels, you just go to the last book of the New Testament, 
get out of the way in the heavenly warfare and the heavenly apocalyptic imagery there angels are warring in the same way we need to spiritually and in in, in care war for the hearts and lives of our grandchildren we must they need it and that's what we're here for you know you you have so much that is fantastic. And the stories in the book, some are extremely humorous. Some of them are, are, are sad in a way, but there's always a redemption to them. Uh, but you have one story, one section where you're saying, uh, yes, you're older. Your body is starting to fail. Don't be afraid. Don't hide it. Admit it. And I thought back to a time where my grandparents had gone to church with us. Uh, we were living, uh, we had a summer cottage out on Long Island. And it was time to kneel, and she didn't kneel. And I just glanced over at her, and she just smiled and whispered in my ear and said, can't do it anymore. She wasn't afraid to let people know that she was frail, that she physically couldn't do something, but it didn't lessen how strong her love was. Her body may not have that strength, but her heart still held it. And here she was. She was just barely into her 50s at the time, and... She was on a walker. She passed away one uh, one day. Uh, right the day they were supposed to take the cast off her leg, she had stood up to go to the bathroom, and her bones were so brittle that she broke her leg. And the day the cast was coming off, we all say to this day, her heart couldn't, her husband taking care of her anymore. She didn't want to put that burden on him, so she just finally let God take her. Um, wow. I'm getting worked up emotional at it, but that love and strength that she impaired, even though the body was frail, is something that still stays with me. And even her yeah. husband, my, my grandfather, had dementia. He still loved us, and we could still feel his presence up until the final time. You know, we knew that love was there, even though at times he couldn't recognize us. Uh, so grandparents right. have a huge, huge impact. And with these grandparents now, and it's a rising number of grandparents, especially with the rising number of single-family homes. Children are being abandoned to the care of the nearest family member, which most of the time is the grandparent. Right. Well, and to build on that, Anne, this is uh, also bringing out uh, one of the other letters in the acronym HEART. You have heritage, and I talk about angel. This uh, story in your life experience expresses the E. Children and grandchildren look at grandparents as an example. And this uh, vulnerability to say this is where I am physically or mentally is huge. Uh, Children uh, write this as they mature. How did your grandparents uh, impact you? By their example. I learned how to deal with health issues by watching my grandparents deal with their health issues. And you hear this, oh, many, many times. I watched my grandfather care for my grandmother when she was failing. They learn from their grandparents how a couple care for each other. Where are they going to learn that? They're not going to learn that on television. They're not going to learn that on YouTube. When they see it in action, it's undeniable. So as they go through a health crisis or face difficulties, this example really imprints a young children in ways that you haven't considered and don't consider until you get in a similar situation or you have time to stop and reflect and smell the roses, so to speak. 
Another place where example comes out big time is is in marriage. You know, uh, the the tenuous, tenuousness of marriage now is is common. We don't know, you know, all the influences and people do stupid stuff and they walk out and and then, you know, it, it creates havoc. One of the things that that comes up in, in interviews I did is that uh, these adults look back and reflect on how their grandparents' marriage, uh, even though imperfect, uh, endured, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And how that, when they get in a tough spot in their relationship, they default and think, oh, I know I can do more. I, I can endure or I know, you know, what, I must do in order to make the best of it, which it may not be uh, the the best, but you know the stick-to-itiveness and, and what researchers have called grit. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes kids, particularly in, in uh, urban environments where, you know, the family is much more complex, the kids that rise to the surface have this grit, the ability to overcome. It's somewhat uh, a parallel to resiliency, but this grit is is a distinguishing characteristic between those who make it through really really tough times and those who don't. Well, I'm convinced grit, gr, is also indicative of where they see examples and perhaps grandparents, grandmothers, grandfathers, grandmas, grandpas uh, are one of those that contribute to that grit factor. Now, researchers didn't test that. I'm just uh, hypothesizing at this point, but I'm sure there's truth because in the narratives that I've read, and your story is a good example of that. Now, so many memories came flooding back as I was reading your book. And uh, I'm trying to put a book together myself, and it was giving me a lot of great ideas because um, it, it, it is a very touching book. <clears throat> but when you think about the influence that the family has on a, a developing child, children absorb at an amazing, amazing rate. So they see if mom and dad are fighting, you know, they see that and they absorb that. If dad is being abusive to mom, that in, and mom is not defending herself or defending the child. They see that. And cra- grandparents have a unique role in also helping to diffuse a situation and showing the child that what is a good family life and what is not a good family life. And then conversely, if a grandparent is, is poorly behaved, the child absorbs that. That is the parent's responsibility to show what is a good family life compared to a bad family life. And you have examples of exactly these very situations throughout the book. Yes. Uh, um, Boy, it's so delightful for me uh, as an author to have an interviewer that is so conscientious as to read the book. (laughs) And and what I tried to do. You know, the last person, the last person that said that to me was judge Janine Pirro. (laughs) She came on and you read the book. Yeah. Oh, good, 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 Ann. Thank you. So, uh, all right, so the the examples, uh, I think life is full of examples, and we need contrast. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a, a bad example, uh, and this is uh, an example that, that uh, some of you may be aware of, okay? 
there was a, a, a young man who, who grew up in, in middle America, in o- Ohio, and this is in his autobiography. He's even written a song about his grandfather. And uh, this young man uh, uh, went to a Christian school, and so a private school, and he came home, you know, and went to his grandfather's place, uh, and his grandfather was down in the basement. And back then, uh, you know, his grandfather was looking at uh, what I say unhealthy uh, uh, sick material because he was sick and messed up. Uh, some pornography, and you know his his grandson was hiding behind the stairs, peering through, and he saw all this, and it it, it so seared him that uh, when he uh, you know matured in high school, he said, "Man, this 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 conservative Christian stuff is a bunch of bunk," and that that young man grew to be a man. His name is Marilyn Manson. He's a rocker and a shock jock who does horrific stuff, uh, like throws human waste on his crowds when he does a concert. And so he, he, he wrote a song about his grandfather being a sick, wretched man and how this prompted him to, to live in that same sort of wretchedness. So, you know, we have, you know, uh, stories like that. And so I, 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 I am so saddened to hear when a grandparent uh, abuses, uh, and we've got to be real that that has happened. And I, I beg uh, for the forgiveness on behalf of grandparents, as a grandfather I am, if that has happened to you. That shouldn't have happened. That's not a part of God's design. And I believe that there will be healing and support when you find healthy examples of of what grandparenting and and, and parenting should be like uh, to, to, you know, overcome some of the sick things that happen to you. So we uh, have to, to remember uh, as grandparents, there's, you know, a, a day where everything will be revealed. We, we think we're so sharp by digging down on every person on the planet and showing dirt and smut and, and unhealthy behavior in their life. Well, guess what? Someday, everything will be revealed. So this leads us to the R, And Okay, so we have heritage, example, angelic. I wonder what the R is. Listen closely. No matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you have made, I really believe the R is for you. It's reconciliation. As a grandparent, you're in a role to make things right, like never before. I mean, you're going to looking at your last days. It may be 20, 30, 40 years from now, but, but this reconciling factor is big. Uh, reconciling means willingly take ownership for things that may have not been done the way now in your mature position you wish they would have. You may have made a mistake. You may have walked out on, on, on a marriage. You may have you know, done something that that has has caused pain. Uh, I encourage grandparents to do this. uh, It's going to return many-fold in the way of building relational capital. Go to your kids and say this. By the way, your children are the doorway to your grandchildren. That's right. You can't be 
the best grandmother or grandfather that you you desire to be until you're first the mother or the father. So think of this. You go to your children and say, hey, there were some things that came down when you were at home that uh, I, I, looking back, I could have done better. In fact, I'm sorry, and if there are specifics, just lay them out, whatever they are. And then say this. I I did the best I could, but I, I fell far short. But I just want you to know, I want to be the best grandparent I, pro- I possibly can. I want to be a part of your team in helping you because these children you have, they're just gifts from God. And I see that, and I see things a lot differently. So let me w- know what I can do. And what you're doing in this reconciliation process is expressing humility. Is there a short supply of humility in America right now? Duh, of course there is. When (laughs) an aged grandparent, you know, humbles themselves, what do you think happens? I think uh, the, the, the Lord's brother said, humble yourself and he will lift you up. And what it does is it creates relational capital like nothing else. I mean, this is rich. This is great stuff. It's what you know, relationships are rebuilt on. And every one of us, and and by the way, if you don't think that you would do anything over differently, you need to go see a therapist because we all (laughs) have stuff that, 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 that we could do differently. So be humble, be open, and then say, I want to be the best grandmother or grandfather I possibly can be. And, they may just be caught and say, whoa, I can't believe this is happening. And they will enjoy this reconciliation process. Wow, the chat room absolutely loves you. And Kel has asked uh, a question that we had asked earlier, but, you know, in case anyone missed it, can you adopt a grandparent? And um, one of the thoughts was is that if there is a senior center or a senior living facility uh, going over there and seeing if someone there has no family, because there are a lot of people that end up in these, you know, senior senior facilities that have no one in their life and that if a stranger steps in and adopts them as a grandparent, it would be life-changing element for both sides. Oh, yes. Let's just talk about that. I had the privilege of being a conservator to an elderly lady years ago, and I took my children. Dee and I had five children, and um, we didn't live close to their grandparents. We lived away, so I'm thinking, okay, how do I keep them in touch? We adopted some grandparents. We would go over to the care facility and, and see Rose, Rose Spencer. And I guarantee she would tell the same stories every time. The administrator, and as you said, Ann, it's absolutely true. You go into a, a long-term care facility, a CCRC, Continuing Care Retirement Center, uh, the visits are, are long or not. They're short, and there's long distance in between them. They thrive on youth coming in. So the administrator saw me dragging my kids over to see Rose. Uh, he had uh, a, a jar of candy kisses setting on his table. Whenever he saw my kids, he said, hey, you, you kids, come in here. He said, reach in that jar and take as many as your hand would hold. And here I am thinking, <laughs> oh, great, you know, you're going to sugar them up. Those kids never forgot that. My kids remember that. 
And then we would go see Rose. And Rose lived to be 103. And it, it was incredible. So much so that my oldest daughter named one of her daughters Rose. Not after any of her grandparents, but Rose because of the impact of that connection. So whether you're in a faith community, which is a good place to create and adopt grandparents, or in a community center, there, there are many places for you to adopt and connect, and you're going to benefit. It's a win-win. Your kids will benefit, you will benefit, and do you think you're going to bring joy and happiness to this elder person who may be suffering physically, emotionally, or from lack of visits from their own family? You bet. You will bless them immeasurably. Well, I'm, I'm seeing people lining up in the studio. Just to remind you that if you're listening, uh, fine. If you want to ask a question or have a comment, please press 1. Otherwise, my assumption is that you are only listening. Our guest is Dr. Ken uh, Canfield. His book is The Heart of Grandparenting, Five Keys to Being the Best Grandparent Possible. And all these stories you're telling here on air are also in the book. Uh, Marilyn Manson, uh, definitely, uh, you told the story about Rose inside the book, which uh, <clears throat> I found absolutely fascinating. But you also tell about capturing stories so that, you know, when that grandparent does pass away, you have something in writing. And it's funny because uh, a friend of the show, a friend of ours, Dan Perkins, wrote a book called Why Grammy Can't Remember Me Anymore, about a grandparent that has dementia and how the grandchild could work with the parents in building the story of that, that grandparent's life and helping the grandparent to remember or hold on to those memories a little bit more. So you have a dichotomy here that can be built upon between child, uh, grandchild, child, and grandparent. Yeah, uh, or in fact, the trichotomy, where you get the intergenerational uh, connection, absolutely. Um, okay, you, you brought up the tea. I tell you, you are a great interviewer. Thank you. Uh, the tea, <laughs> and by the way, uh, go to. you can go again. We have uh, a weekly a newsletter where I summarize research. Go to Grandkids Matter, grandkidsmatter.org, and you can sign up. Okay, the tea. Uh, well, grandparents, your house is a museum. Now, that is very important because the T is teaching. There are things in your history and in your house that need explanation. And the things that you do, uh, just sharing why you do what you do is, is an important part of you passing on this heritage. Teaching relates to uh, the, the moral. So, so what are we trying to teach and how are we trying to teach it? Uh, I think all of us live by a creed, a moral code, a compass. Uh, for me, one of the best uh, creeds in, out there are the Ten Commandments. Isn't it ironic that we're stripping those from all public places? It's like, oh, we don't want those out there. Well, why don't you? Uh, it's so much a part of developing a moral uh, compass and guide, uh, sure there are thou shall not, but those those what is known as uh, uh, conscientious uh, 
statements to, to restrict you from some behaviors also as, as positive. If you're not going to steal, what are you going to do? Be a giver. If you're not going to commit uh, 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 murder, what are you going to do? Protect life. If you're not going to lie, thou shalt not bear false witness, what are you going to do? Live by the truth. And there in the fourth commandment, the fifth, if you're from a Catholic heritage, is the all-important command with a blessing. Honor your father and mother all the days of your life, and you will live long and dwell securely in the land. That's the only one with a blessing. And so here is this, this reminder that, that family and honor and respect is key. So how do you teach your grandchildren respect and honor? And what is in your museum that you can tell a story about? And then what is it that you're trying to pass on to them in their faith formation, in their vocational formation, in their family and relational formation. Uh, I'm working on a, and, and so getting on our newsletter, you'll be able to see uh, a new grandparenting profile uh, that's built on this HEART acronym that gets more to the practical and the specifics uh, because those are all important as we apply those. So my question would be, what, what are you seeking to teach? What values? Is it the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, following the law? Uh, and how are you doing that? And as a grandparent, I believe you have as much uh, influence as some teachers that, that they may have in school. We, we tend to uh, parlay or give the authority to teaching to others. Uh, that's okay to work with others, but there are unique things they need to learn from you that you can give to them that no one else can in the way that you would provide it. Well, I Dr. call it the abrogating the responsibility to government. But, uh, Curtis, we've got Cal in on the line. She wanted to ask a question. Go ahead, Cal. Then we, uh, I'll have, have you hey, next, Curtis. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Annie and Curtis, for taking my call. I have been listening to this program, and uh, Dr. Canfield, you are an amazing um, individual, and I really hope that there is a way that people out there um, recognize the value of a grandparenthood and that if you don't have a grandparent, go to your uh, a center, go to your senior citizen home and adopt a grandparent. Like, for goodness sake, like these are people who fought and died in wars to ensure our uh, democracies. I'm in Canada, by the way. But I have a democracy here in Canada. And uh, the United States fought for their republic. I just want to uh, call in and say thank you. Uh, uh, You know, Annie and Curtis, they're running out of time. I have... So many bullet points I want to bring up with you, Dr. Canfield. I just want to, you know, in summation, say thank you so very much for everything that you are doing, sir. You are certainly welcome, and I have a master's degree from the University of British Columbia. I love Canada, 
and Canucks. What a joy to talk to someone like you. Now, what I hear is this, and this is important, and I, I want to repeat it. And I know, Curtis, I, I'm anxious to hear what, what you comment. I believe we're on the precipice of a renewal in the family. Things have never been this difficult. Uh, children, uh, raising children need all the help and support they have. I believe that catalytic element, because of the time and the access to resources, are grandparents, are the elders that can step in and provide these two things, uh, provide a sense of encouragement and blessing. Uh, we need to look at what uh, has happened within the canon of Scripture, uh, because here is a, a, a dying father who's in Egypt, and uh, the uh, administrator and the leader of all of Egypt, his son Joseph, who was banished and, and by his brothers and, and put there, uh, brings his father to his, his two sons. And before he passes, his son, his, his father speaks prophetically to these sons. And so, grandparents, you have a unique word to give to your grandchildren that they won't get from their parents, they won't get from their teachers. What is that word? Are you asking God? Here's an example from a Canadian, Michael J. Fox, the actor who has Parkinson's right, right now, yeah. grew up in Canada. And I, I make mention of this in the book. And he became an actor because his nana, his grandmother, who didn't get to see him rise because she, she passed to the fame that he achieved, because she was the only one that said, you are so funny, you are such a good actor, I think you should do that. Now, his well-meaning father wanted him to be a welder, you know, because an actor, how can you make a living doing that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and others were there. And so here is this Nana who spoke prophetically and encouragingly, you can do this, you've got a gift. And as grandparents, we need to stir this up and see an infusion of this, an outpouring of this across all of North America. You know, the, that that is exactly the point, and I was bringing this up in uh, Annie and uh, Curtis's uh, uh, chat, uh, uh, Dr. Canfield, and I have such a fond memories of my uh, granddad. He is he was a World War II uh, veteran, and we would go down uh, to the dock. There was a cottage that we had, and we would all go and congregate. And Granddad and myself, we would wander down uh, to the dock, and he would pull out a pack of Rothman's cigarettes and say, Don't tell Grand. Like, these are the sort of things that we have to cherish. Right. And they're, 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 they're moments in time, so we need to capture them with with a sense of finesse and, and honesty and just move forward. Curtis, you were going to say something. Yes. Go ahead, Curtis. I extended the show a few minutes, so Curtis, go ahead and take uh -huh. your time, Dr. Canfield. All right. I live in the state of Florida. Um, I once worked for Child Protective Services. Now, one of the most devastating events in family court for grandparents was, uh, of course, P 
parents who got divorced. And depending on the outcome or the relationship between that grandparent and and at least one of the members of the um, the couple that got divorced, you know, they may not have had, you know, access to those children after the divorce. Well, eventually there were some advocacy groups that fought for the rights of grandparents in Florida to, to see their grandchildren. Now, I know we have a lot of grandparents in this audience, and I'm not sure if every every state has those rights, but I would say, you know, if you don't have that right after um, the divorce of your children or one of your children, um, fight for those rights so you can see your grandchildren. That's all I wanted to say. Well, and I would point, uh, and thank you, Chris, for bringing that up, because there are a lot of estranged uh, grandparents now, not because they want to be estranged, but because the courts are not as expedient or active or, you know, you get uh, parents that just uh, do uh, things that are, are not in the best interest of the children, but but in their interest, and it leaves this fragmentation. Every state in the United States has grandparenting rights provisions. If you need to, you can find out about them. Now, as for the estrangement, all you have to do is go to our website, grandkidsmatter.org, and Google, there's a search right there, estrangement. And we've got articles related to that because this is a very painful and, and sad time for these grandparents who long and yearn for that connection. And sometimes uh, it's, it's, it's difficult and costly to get it. So every state has those. Uh, if you're in that situation, uh, look to somebody with experience. They can get you the, the answers you need. All right, great. Uh, we're seeing down to our last six minutes, Dr. Canfield. It has been such a pleasure having you with us. Um, is this book going to be up on Amazon soon? Because it, it is difficult to find. I do have a link on the show page to it. Yeah, yes, yes, it's on Amazon, uh, to my knowledge, right now. I was just released this week, and it summarized both the research and and you know practical stories and applications related to enhancing. Uh, 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 supercharging your grandparenting role as you think about these these vital days that you have. And if you're not a grandparent, uh, it also uh, kind of highlights the the role that that we as as parents, uh, grandparents, can have as an elder statesman in the in the community or the family system. Yeah, Um, because there's a comment in in the chat room from Vorp saying that I married the daughter, not the parents. They're going to interfere with my life. I wouldn't accept that. There, there is a tendency in certain families for the parents interfering with the life of the children as they try to make their own life independently. And this is again another topic you addressed in your book. You know how also grandparents can diffuse that situation. You know, um, just a comment because uh, when I married my husband here. Um, he was surprised about how well I took care of his mother. Uh, but now my mom is uh, visiting us, and 
she was amazed how much tender care I have for her because I learned from watching them how they treated my grandparents and how my grandparents responded with their love to my parents as well as to us. And there, the example is out there. We just have to share it. That's right. Absolutely. I concur. <laughs> well, Dr. Canfield, uh, people can find you at grandkidsmatter.org, and they can also uh, find your book. Uh, that is up, uh, A link is up on the show page, The Heart of Grandparenting, Five Keys to Being the, Grest Parent, the, the Teeth and Straight, the Best Grandparent possible and god bless you for the the hard work you do and for the book you wrote thank you ann it was a delight to be with you we'll do this again and happy grandparents day uh in the lower 48 that's right uh this was designated in the 70s as grandparents day this sunday so enjoy the position that you hold and hold high uh, that with honor, and I think what we'll do is see uh, a strengthening of family. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, take care and enjoy your weekend, Dr. Canfield. I thank you very much. You're welcome. All the best. All right. All take right, care. Check it out. And, uh, Kel, thank you for the call in. And, uh, guys, you rock in the chat room. Thank you. Uh, it's an amazing show that we had on today. That said, I you catch my breath. And 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 Curtis, uh you you two always rock it <laughs> and I appreciate when you take my call. Uh, uh today is um another exceptional uh, program. <laughs> like I don't know how you do it, Eddie and Curtis, but you manage to put out the best and the brightest out there for our edification. Thank you once again for taking my call. Love you both. Love you too. No problem, Gail. Thank you. Uh, Curtis, we will be back here on Tuesday, and we've got two blockbuster guests. We've got uh, Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch and Frank Miniature. Um, He's got a new book out, and the title just escapes me. I think it's The Spies Within or something like that, about the enemies within the shadow government. Uh, We'll be discussing 9-11, because it'll be the anniversary of 9-11. 17 years ago, we were attacked on our soil by Islam. Uh, We'll be discussing that 9-11 with Robert Spencer and Frank Miniature and the enemies we still have within the government that we have to weed out. Uh, We're watching the deep, dark state even today. Uh, where you get the New York Times editorial that was printed. And I heard a rumor just before coming on air, they may know who the person is that leaked, uh, who uh, penned that op-ed editorial to New York Times. But that said, I want to thank everyone for joining us, Uh, those that were up in the chat room, those listening in and watching on Facebook and YouTube. And we will be back here, same bat time, same bat station, on Tuesday, nine eleven. So Curtis, yep, I say. Oh yeah. Good night, and, and God bless. And I leave you with our closing song, "When the Roll Is Called Up Yonder." 